Other announcements other than microphone on eBay. Uh, we have programs when you came in. Um, if you are newish and we don't have your email address, we would love to have that as we've got some exciting stuff happening this fall in the living room. We've got a, a men's retreat coming up. We've got um, our anniversary coming up, our anniversary service. We're celebrating six years next week. We'd love to have those filled out. You can drop in the connection card box. I, also, as a church, we're working our way through uh, the Bible with a two-year Bible reading plan, and Carrie makes these really cool-looking bookmarks uh, two months at a time. So we've got October, November bookmark is inside the program, so if you don't have one of those, grab one as we continue to journey through Scripture together. And then also Kid City News is in there, which will let you know what your, our kids are learning about. Speaking of Kid City, so for the first time in six years, we have dedicated kid space, which we're really excited about. That um, We're not setting up in a bar anymore, and the kids have a lot more room. They have space that already has toys and crafts and much more space than they've had. Additionally, we've got a new curriculum that our Kid City Director Amy Johnson's been rolling out. It's both really engaging for the kids and also fun for the adults as well. It gives the adults who are serving in Kid City more freedom um, to make things simple or expand upon things if they want. We want to go from two classrooms of Kid City to three to take the level of engagement up for our children. And we need 10 more adults to serve in Kid City to do that. So if you would consider signing up sometime in the next month or so, you serve once a month, um, you learn how to develop both engagement and patience and excitement and how to have fun with kids. So really think about that. And then next week, we're trying something new. We like to try things around here. We're doing dinner church next Sunday night. So to celebrate our sixth anniversary, We've got a few people in Restore who are going to share stories about how they've seen Christ move in our church. We're going to set up these round tables throughout the space, and we're going to have a giant pitch-in dinner. And we have a sign-up genius that we've created. We emailed it out yesterday. We're going to email it out again this week. It's on our social media, our Facebook page. If you're going to be in town next week want to celebrate with us, bring some food, sign up using that link, and tell us what you're going to bring. And we're all going to eat, drink, and be merry and celebrate uh, six years of God doing stuff in Restore Church. So speaking of stories, you ever have those weeks where you, that are filled with what I would call great stress, like enjoyable stress? Like, so for me, enjoyable stress is related to opportunity or change or movement, something new that I get to try or experiment with and experience. This is enjoyable stress for me, and I just had one of those weeks filled with enjoyable stress. So on Wednesday, I got to hang out with this group of six other church planters. We all planted churches in different parts of the Northeast region, um, from here, Annapolis, and then ranging all the way up to Buffalo, New York, all the way up the, the Eastern Seaboard. And when we would see each other at these gatherings over the years, we would all just kind of like gravitate, gravitate to one another, and we just really enjoyed each other's company. And then one of these guys decided to formalize this group and say, hey, we need to have like the seven of us get together twice a year for an overnight and just party and just hang out with one another. And so we started doing this three years ago. And so in the springtime, uh, we get together and then in the fall. And Wednesday was that time. I got to go hang out with those guys. And it's literally something as soon as the one in the spring is over with the next day, I'm like, OK, when's the next one that we get to hang out together? And so I've been looking forward to that for months on end. So I got to do that on Wednesday, and it was up in the Poconos. Um, and I don't know what you imagine when pastors get together for an overnight, uh, but there's cigars, high-end whiskey, and like long conversations into like three in the morning. That's, that's what we do, and it's a blast. Went, so sleep-deprived, 
drove to Philly to meet up with Carrie, who was uh, at our prax- this Praxis Conference is the name of it. It's a missional church planning conference. Carrie and I are coaching eight church planners in, in missional church, and they're all over the U.S., and they were at this conference. So we got to go to this conference. We got to hang out with them, meet them all in person for the very first time. Up to this point, we've only met them via Zoom call, like video call, which is great, but it's not the same thing as being in the same room. So got to spend time with them at lunches, at dinners. We got to um, see old friends. We got to hear some from some of our favorite thinkers and speakers. Carrie and I got to teach some as well. So it was like wall-to-wall social interaction from Wednesday to Carrie stay there through Saturday morning. We're both introverts. So the wall-to-wall social interaction is extremely tiring. I mean, we slept well, we didn't sleep much, but when we did, it was a heavy sleep. So that was Thursday and Friday. We taught a session on Friday night, and we, I, I hopped in my car, drove back to DC on Friday night. I rolled into Silver Spring at 1 a.m. I was up at six because our three boys all started their fall sports on Saturday morning. All three have different teams, all three different sports and different times. So me and Grammy drove them around Saturday to their different activities. The first activity was Will's cross-country meet, which was at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning. That's earlier than school starts. I couldn't believe that. It was actually really fun, but getting up at the crack of dawn and trying to get the boys out of bed and rolling is exhausting. So we did the cross-country meet. He ran an 807 mile, by the way. That's pretty darn good for a nine-year-old. I can't run an 807 mile. I can't do it. Um, I was like, man, awesome. It was really fun. So then we went to soccer. Sutter is seven years old. He's playing soccer. And from the, from the get-go of arriving at the uh, field, I could tell this, there's trouble in the air. All right, the, the registration was really disorganized. Everybody was running late. Uh, I signed him up to play with six and seven-year-olds. The next thing I know, they've divided the kids up into five and six-year-olds playing together and seven through 10-year-olds playing together. I also noticed there's no coaches. Like there's no, usually there's like two or three parents who coach a team. In this scenario, like some of the league directors, there's one coach for this entire group for, for like 18, seven to 10-year-olds. There's one coach. And so not only am I concerned as a, a dad, like my dad instincts are like, no, this is not a good situation to have my second grader playing soccer with fifth graders. Uh, my coach instincts were going bonkers too because I'm like, that ratio is terrible, 18 to 1. There's no, the, the grass in the field hadn't been mowed in like two weeks. It's like this tall. There's no markers. There's no paint. There's no cones. There's just these two pop-up goals. So there's no field. You give seventh, second through fifth graders no boundaries, how do you think it's going to turn out? It's a mess. So I'm in the middle. I'm sitting on the sidelines pretending like I'm excited for Sutter and, hey, yeah, good job, buddy. Yeah. And then I'm typing this email on my phone to the league director. I'm a, I'm a man of action. I told you this. I like movement. So I'm listing all the things I'm concerned about. I'm like, I'll help. I'll coach. I'll do, let's do seven and eight-year-olds. I'll coach that team. If someone can do the nines and tens, I'll buy cones. Like, what do we need to do to fix this problem? I don't want to be that guy that just complains and doesn't want to be part of the solution. But I'm a little internally frustrated. Not to mention it's hot out. There's bugs everywhere. I'm sleep-deprived and I've talked to people for four straight days. As I'm getting ready to send this email, I see the coach line up like Lionel Messi from midfield and launch a shot at look like Mach 2 with fire coming off of it, nearly miss like five different kids and go in the net, and he proceeds to celebrate. He decided to help this team, and that was like my final straw. And all the other parents, when he scored, he was like pumping his fist. 
I heard all the parents groan and start mumbling to each other. That was not my reaction. My reaction was one of, like, shoot from the hip. I just started yelling at him. And I was like, what are you doing? And I just started yelling, what are you doing? Until I got his attention. And then I don't remember, I think I said, um, are you, I was like, are you kidding me? And then I said, let the kids play. And he just, he was like this. He was like, like this kind of thing. And um, it wasn't my finest moment. I don't feel guilty about it, but it wasn't the right reaction to the situation. So the rest of the day went great. All that's like no big deal. Everything's going to get ironed out. Soccer's going to be fun. We're going to help with the problem. I'll come off the bench for coaching. I'm not going to kick soccer balls at kids. It'll be great. I started thinking about in that moment of there was, a, there was an action and then there was a reaction. Was my reaction to a very mild problem uh, from the last three days of my environment? In other words, was I influenced to say something like that because I was tired or because I was socially wiped out or because it was hot? Did my environment inform that decision? Or am I biologically wired to see a problem and try to solve it or try to, even if it's like a minor injustice, say something and inject myself into the situation? And those are very two popular ways of thinking. Number one is the way I live, act, and speak formed by my environment. Am I socially formed? Uh, was my reaction to this coach formed from environment or environmental factors like sleep deprivation or overstimulation or because I was sweaty and uncomfortable? Or number two is the way I live and act and speak biologically formed. Does my DNA and my brain design control my actions? When faced with what I perceived to be a minor injustice, however mild or severe, do I have to open my mouth? Do I have to say something? What about the Good Samaritan in Scripture? So this is, we've been working through this story in uh, the book of Luke. We've been studying the greatest commandment in Scripture. Um, one, it's, it's one example in Scripture of Jesus t- showing us how to love our neighbor And the Good Samaritan is the only example he gives. And the Good Samaritan's reaction to the wounded Jewish man on the side of the road, was that reaction uh, environmentally informed or was it biologically informed? And uh, like was the Samaritan, what shaped his reaction? What led to him to respond? So let's read this one last time. Luke 10, 25 through 37. It's on page 725 in your Bible. We've read this story every week, and for me, it just never gets old. Um, Luke 10, 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? The man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, Jesus gave him a story. A man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So one could definitely make the argument that the Samaritan violated all kinds of social, religious, and ethnic racial barriers with his actions. We talked about this extensively in week one. The fact that a Samaritan would even interact with a Jew, that's unheard of. No one ever would do that. And there's more to it than that. So maybe the Samaritan is just biologically wired to be a rebel, to flaunt society's barriers and conventions and structures and rules. That's one, argue, that's one way of looking at it. But one could also argue maybe we don't know how he grew up. Maybe his parents were deeply justice-oriented people. Maybe they, maybe they were medical professionals and he just learned how to take care of people by being in the household with them. Maybe he had people in major times of his own need who had responded to his need and therefore felt this, this uh, instinct to pay it forward so to speak, or to, pay, you know, to, to respond in the way that people had helped him. Maybe his childhood and his experiences informed his reaction. Ultimately, we don't know why he helped, but we could make guesses as to why. Um, but I'm confident in my understanding of why I reacted the way I did in that soccer game. My reaction, was it biologically or socially informed? It was both. Both factors played into that. I know that I'm hardwired to notice problems and to do something about them. I just can't help myself. It's in my nature. I also know it was ex I was extremely tired and it was hot and sweaty and I was annoyed by people. And I know that my quick, unthinking reaction was because of some of those factors as well. Because I could have easily just walked over to them and calmly whispered, hey, what are you doing? You don't need to do that. Don't let the kids score the goals. It would have been just as easy. It wouldn't have made a scene. It wouldn't have made this guy feel bad for making a mistake. And there are philosophers and scientists who land on both sides of this question. And we're talking like centuries-old questions that like Voltaire and Nietzsche and Freud and, and, and recent people like Judith Butler. These are, these are great thinkers who are still trying to figure out, are we biologically formed or are we environmentally informed? And my answer to them would be, what I think is the Christian perspective is both. It's holistic. God uses everything to form us. So how does this affect our desire and ability to love our neighbor? Well, we need to ask ourselves, what's preventing me from loving my neighbor? In those times where we just don't feel like loving someone, both at, you know, whether it's our actions or our words. Biologically, am I hardwired, like with a low level of empathy and mercy? Anybody? Anybody want to, no mercy, no empathy? I, I, I struggle. Am I hardwired to avoid risk of entering what my brain tells me might be a risky or time-costing engagement? Like someone broken down the side of the road, how long is that going to take me to help them? Do we assess the situation Am I hardwired to overanalyze to the point that I miss opportunities to act? Am I hardwired to only invest my time and effort into Christian acts that I would deem, like, I want to see fruit, I want to see results? 
or environmentally and socially? Have I been formed to ignore my neighbor or miss those opportunities to love my neighbor? Maybe my desires have changed as my environment has changed. I'm older, I'm more educated, I'm married, I have kids. As life changes, our, our energy begins to be focused in other ways, in other directions. So maybe I'm socially directed away from loving my neighbor and pouring more time and energy into things other than loving neighbors. Maybe, I'm, maybe I have loved my neighbor over and over and over again to the point where I haven't seen any results, I haven't seen fruit, and I'm angry, and I'm bitter, and I'm jaded, and I ask God, are you doing anything? Are you part of this? What's happening? I've been there too. And your, my energy, or maybe your energy and passion for loving your neighbor has waned because of it. Again, my guess is it's probably both biologically, biological and environmentally formed. But both can change. That's key. Your biological structure, the way you think and act, can change. I've heard this saying so many times where like people don't change, they are who they are. That is scientifically false. All right? That is not true. It's a lie. And in this day and age of like, is that a fact? Is that real? That's a fact. You can biologically change. It's called quantum physics. And I know nothing about it, but I know enough that people can biologically change. So we know whether it's science that changes people's brains or the miraculous restorative spirit of God. Maybe it's both. I think it's both. But we can biologically change. Environmentally and socially, you can change. It's, again, a sociological fact that people's environment affects their decision-making. It is a fact. It can dramatically shape you. It's called evolution, and we believe in that as well. That's, people think of that as science, but I think it's also a sociological phenomenon. So the way you think and speak and live can be changed so how can we reshape our desire to love our neighbor? How do we reshape our biology? How do we reshape our environment so that we can live like the Good Samaritan lives, like Jesus lives? How can we change our wiring? How can we change, adapt to our environment to, make, to foster a more intentional way of living out the greatest commandments? So you know one, I'll give you one thing, one action that reshapes us, that inspires us, and that changes us? It's story. When we experience a story or we hear a story or we see a story that can change us i guess that's why i'd be mean, one guess why jesus gave a story in the good samaritan because that commandment's repeated in every gospel it's even in the old testament that's the only instance in scripture where we get a story with the greatest commandment because i think jesus knows story is powerful powerful story can change people and Luke is the one place that we get that story. The act of loving God and loving neighbor is the climax of change. When we, fill, when we fulfill the greatest commandment by loving our neighbor, everything in that particular part of the world is as it should be. Heaven comes to earth, circumstances change, brain waves are reshaped, environments and sociology evolve, and we become more like Jesus, and so does the world. So what reshapes our desire? It's story. And so to give an example, I want to kind of be like Jesus today, and I want to bring my friend, my new friend, Lenise, up here. She's going to share a story about loving neighbors. You want to take that seat? So this is Lenise Rojas. Um, Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining me today up here. Um, Lenise and I had lunch about three or four weeks ago. 
Um, just to give you a little bit of background, she's been, she found Restore because she started renting a living room back in the springtime. And then I discovered what for, and I'm like, oh, you've got to come tell people this. You have to come talk about this because I was so inspired by her. So before we get to that, though, tell us a little bit about your story. Talk about how did, because this is an amazing story you shared with me. How did you come to know Jesus Christ? Can you share that story with us? Sure. Um, hi, everybody. Like he said, I'm Lenis Rojas, and it's just a pleasure to be here with you guys. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, excuse my English. I always say that. I hope you understand me, but <laughs> be patient with me. So I came to this country in 1998, and um, I decided to stay. I fell in love with it. And um, I, didn't, I wasn't running for anything. I just liked the United States. And after six months, I became illegal. I was not a legal resident of this country. Two years later, I married my um, the father of my kids. And two weeks after that, he decided to take me out of the country in his car. And I was in Mexico. But I didn't want to go to Mexico. <laughs> we were living in Texas. We wanted to go to the beach. He took a wrong turn. And when I noticed, it said, welcome to Mexico. I freaked. Um, I knew that I was leaving this country, that I just wanted to stay. I just got married two weeks ago. Everything is going to be great. He took me out of the country. <laughs> um, no money, no papers to come back. I had a great idea. I placed myself inside the trunk of the car, and um, we decided to cross the bridge that way to the United States. It didn't go the way I, I saw it in my head. And... Um, Immigration found me. They opened the trunk, and there I was. Um, that, was that is a serious crime. Um, uh, I didn't know. <laughs> so they put me in a detention center for 11 days. Um, it was a very scary situation. Um, it was the end of my American dream. I, all I wanted was to stay. Uh, I, I didn't want to go outside. I just, he took me out. They didn't care. I did something illegal. Uh, during those 11 days, I think like day number nine, three wonderful ladies um, with broken Spanish came to the detention center. And they just started to preach about Jesus. And um, I was Catholic. I thought I believed, but they always keep saying, do you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I'm like, what does that mean? What, what are they saying? So I got closer and closer, and my broken English and the broken Spanish made a connection. And they asked me, do you want to say Jesus? And I said, yes, I do want to say Jesus. My roommates <laughs> in the detention center, they were like, don't do that. They are changing your religion. They, I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I need a miracle. <laughs> Have you seen where we are? <laughs> we are between Mexico and the United States. I'm so far from my family. This is not my safe place. But I met Jesus there. Those ladies left. I don't know their names. Never seen them again. But they planted a seed. And I want to believe that it's giving fruit. I, I hope that it's giving fruit. But that's how uh, Jesus found me there. That's such a great story. There is more, more, more details, but I'm going to write a book one day because <laughs> there's should. so many details. But um, yes, Jesus found me there. So I could, uh, 
I know, I know the story, but one could probably tell <clears throat> you would have an empathy and a heart for someone in similar circumstances. And so I'd love for you to share. Um, <clears throat> it's, it, you have a love and affection for Central American refugees seeking, seeking a better life in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about who you're serving, how it helps them, how you got connected to Restore Church? Okay. Somehow, uh, 20 years later, no, 18 years later, I ended up working with um, immigrants that were apprehended by immigration crossing the border. Um, they are all running uh, from Central America, running away. There are different stories. They are running from violence, death. Um, um, there, if you think of poor people here, there, it's not the same as being poor over there. So they all are running away from those situations. And um, sometimes they, they try to go to the bridge, but they are stopped. So they cross the border Ill illegally, and they are apprehended by um, immigration. And guess what? They are so happy when they are apprehended by immigration, because that's for them, like, I'm safe. Uh, so when they are apprehended by immigration, they are taken to a detention center. And um, then that's how they come to me. From those detention centers, we receive people from Texas, California, uh, from all the border. And when they have family or friends that can receive them in Maryland, that's how we receive them. We are contracted by the Department of Homeland Security. And um, my job is to first make sure that they are where they say they are. They have to report to us all the time. They have an um, ankle bracelet. Part of my job is also uh, connecting with resources in the community. So I try my best to connect them with food bans. They don't know how to register the kids. Um, they know nothing. <laughs> so uh, many of them live in really precarious situation. So my job is not only to tell what, you know, immigration is telling me they have to do this, this, and that. And I do my job, I have to. Um, but also I connect them uh, the best I can with attorneys, schools, with everything that I can, but um, there is a need. Um, many of them are going to be sent back to their country because they, they are going to go through the process. And they're going to go to the judge and they're going to have to tell the judge, sorry, I crossed the border illegally, but this is why I did it. And the judge is the one that decides you can stay or you have to go. Whether they stay or they go, um, if they go back with Jesus, I did my job. Okay, so um, I have so much access to their life. I see them all the time. I go to their house. Um, it's a privilege to me that I get to see the uh, naked, no physically, right? But I see all the privacies. Um, I see how they are, the, the struggles that they're having. So um, I can impact their life. And I've seen it. <laughs> uh, we have done it. Uh, many of them have come to Jesus. Many are following Jesus. And their lives are changing. What is going to happen, it is not up to me. But I'm doing my part. Hmm. Wow. T tell us how you got connected. Uh, oh, Terry, <laughs> I was telling uh, her that... Um, uh, how do I tell them about you? I'm not even supposed to be seeing them outside my work. Mm -hmm. But um, I found grace with my boss. 
um, and um, he knows that I'm here, and he knows what we're doing. It's just God that can do that, because I'm not supposed to even see them outside the office or their house. So um, I do this event. I have done like six or seven now. And uh, they, they don't have to show up, because I tell them it's, it's, not obligatory. it's not part of the program. You don't have to, but they show up. So I had one in April, and I, I was running out of time. I was not finding a good place for them, because transportation is a big issue. So I, I was like, it's in two weeks, I don't have the place. So I went to a hotel, they were charging me like six to $700 for two hours. I'm like, well, we're gonna have to take that, we're gonna have to pay it. Um, when I say they, me, I, God always come, and, and he always show up. So I told my coworker, please just, you know, Google something, find something close to us. And she did, she actually Googled. <laughs> and then she came running and said, I found a place called the living room. The what? The living room. And she told me the price. I'm like, you are lying to me. She's like, no. So uh, that's how we connect. I sent the text, he sent it back. And I didn't even tell him the first time. No. That what I was doing, because I was kind of scared, like, you know, when you say what you're going to do about, if he's religious, I don't know. So I didn't tell him the first time. But the second time, in August, I told him, um, I rented it for August, I told him, please, just 30 more minutes, <laughs> I can pay you 30 more minutes, they don't want to leave, and he's like, relax, have a good time, and I'm having a good time. Let me tell you, 14 people accepted Jesus tonight. So I'm having the time of my life. That's when he's like, what? 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 God is so good. And then he's like, what are you doing? Can you send me a picture so I can pray for them? Like, pray? Why does he want to pray? Who is this guy? <laughs> what? Why does he want to present the pictures? And then, what's his name? Tojet? Um, he came that night, and mm -hmm. I say, do you know Aaron? He's like, yeah, he's my pastor. He's a pastor. <laughs> no. So I stopped calling him Aaron, and now I call him Pastor Aaron. <laughs> and that's how I got connected to, to the living room. That, we love that space. It's walking distance for my participants. It's very easy for them to get last night. We, we have like almost 70 people there, 10 people accepted Jesus. Um, the presence of God was just, it, it is marvelous. And I'm just keep thinking, and I told him, like, I don't know how this is. I know it's God, but I'm still like, it's so surreal. I cannot yeah. believe that somebody so little and so imperfect, uh, life are being... I can see it. They tell mm -hmm. me how they're changing. People that are alcoholic, drug addict, women that are being raped, are being changed and transformed. So what's going to happen? I hope that they can stay. I mean, they're already here, but I'm not going to get into politics. That's not my job. But whatever happened, I just want them to take Jesus with them. Wow. Um, so there's a lot of people in this, in, in this room that um, helped make the living room happen, like through their time and energy and, and finances. Uh, but we also, like, we're, we want to be a church community that is always seeking other opportunities to serve and to help. I'm curious if there's anything um, you've been thinking about it as your ministry is growing. It, it's called City of Refuge, right? Yeah, City of Refuge. So, so the City of Refuge grows. Um, and like, I think you said in August there was around 50 people. 
and last time there was around 70. Mm -hmm. um, how can we serve your community? Has anything come to mind? First of all, pray for us. Um, praying is the, the biggest um, help that you can give us. And um, I'm so happy and glad that you guys just, you know, have that desire. Because they are here in your community. They are part of you. Um, and there are needs. But I don't want you to think that I'm here because I want to ask for something. I want to share this story to encourage you. To be involved in just telling people about Jesus. Just tell them how much they love them. Be bold. Be brave. Just be part of what he told you to do. Is just go out there and do disciples. That is my... Uh, that's the main reason that I'm here, just to encourage you that even just tell, when you tell them Jesus really loves you, which is a word or a phrase that everybody uses, but it really, Jesus loves them. <laughs> Jesus loves them. Yeah. But the needs uh, that I see the most in, 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 in our participants, uh, when they come here, it's, winter is coming. Two years ago, Delta Airlines donated 280 jackets. And our participants come, and it's very hot in Central America. So it's cold over here in the winter. We have participants showing up to our office with sandals, flip-flops. They don't have jackets. Their kids didn't have jackets. And it can be really expensive. So uh, we're trying to do, um, you know, we're, we're trying to recollect again jackets for getting ready for the winter. Winter. Also, we have many participants that come with little babies. So now imagine if uh, Juan and Maria are living here in the United States already, and they have three kids, but then um, Rosa came with three kids more, and now you know they took Rosa into the house. Rosa have two kids that are using diapers. Uh, not only they are giving their food, rent, but now they have to buy diapers for them. So many of them run out of diapers. Um, food is a, is a big thing also because food can be expensive. We have food banks, but not all the time they are able to go and get food for them. A lot of food banks ask for IDs and all that kind of yeah. proof. So I'll go ahead. Winter um, clothing, uh, diapers for kids, and food are my main concern for them okay. when they come. When they are just, they are very resilient. Like four months later, <laughs> you can see then like how they got assimilated into the culture. But at the beginning, it's really rough. Also, um, when is the moment the, 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 the you know a couple and it is time for the father to go. We have seen it many times. Father is sent back to, to their country, so now the mother is the one, the main, the, the main provider yeah. for, for the household. There's no rent. There is no way to pay bills. There's nothing. Um, that, that's a big need, too. Okay. I just want to, I think there's a lot of power in sharing it, verbalizing uh, a need and seeing what, the, seeing what God might provide. And I know it's something we want to be considering and praying for. You know, <laughs> I cannot limit God. I don't like to ask for anything. I'm, I don't know if I'm prideful, um, but um, when there is a need, I always see it. 
I always I see God showing up. Yeah. And he's going to use whoever is going to use out there to provide their needs because he cares for them. But I want to be part of that solution. So God is just awesome like that. Well, thank you for being here, Lenise. Let's give her a round of applause for Mr. Ford. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'll be praying for you guys as well. Please, please pray for us. <laughs> We're going to do that right now, actually. Let's just pause for... Before we finish up, I want to pray over Lenise. Um, I'm going to talk after this, but yeah, stay up here. Mm -hmm. I'll pray for you, and then you can have a seat. Lord, thank you for this story. Thank you that we have the honor and the privilege to be a part of it in some small way. Um, thank you for blessing us with a space that um, other people can enjoy, where your, where your word and your love is shared openly. Uh, I pray for a city of refuge, that your power and love would continue to flow abundantly through their efforts and through their words and their actions. Uh, I pray for um, our church, uh, for our hearts to be soft, um, for our minds to work about how we might continue to serve others, um, in particular City of Refuge. Uh, I pray for protection over Lenise and her family and her relationships as she's leading people towards you. We know that Satan does not like that. And I pray that you would Keep darkness and evil and pain at bay um, so that she is free to do your work. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. And I love the living room. It's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lenise. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping it's really great to have stories like this because when we hear stories like this, it can shake something loose inside of us. Um, our desires can be reshaped by Christ, even if it's just a little bit. Um, story is one action that changes, and we have to embrace the stories that Jesus tells us in Scripture, and we have to resist the ideological ones that are presented in our culture. Uh, I mean, two of the most toxic ideologies are, that we have to constantly beat back are the liberal ideologies of the political left and the political right. Um, I don't think these do well in teaching us how to love our neighbor. So we have to really be careful about Trusting in the stories that Jesus gives us to be, our, to be our formation, to reshape our brain and our heart and our motives and our actions. Because only his stories can lead us closer to him and can lead to heaven coming to earth. And so next week, <coughs> um, starting next week, there are some stories this fall that we can get involved in individually and communally. And just, for, you know, October 7th is our sixth anniversary service. Do not underestimate the power of breaking bread with other people and hearing stories of how Jesus is at work. Um, bring food and be there. October 10th is the first night of a weekly women's Bible study at the very cute living room, as, <laughs> as it's going to come to, come to be known. Um, that starts on October 10th from 7.30 to 9 p.m. And then November 9th through, 11, 9th through the 11th, we have the men's retreat. Do not underestimate the power of an uninterrupted experience with Christ and with other people who are pursuing him, to have two full days and two nights of just considering the, the greatest commandment. What's it, how does loving God and loving others, how is that continually going to reshape my life? The cost for that's $175, and you can register online for that. You just go to the giving section at, Rest at Restore Church and select Men's Retreat 2018 as the fund that you want to give to, and you're registered. 
there's a monthly prayer gathering on Wednesday nights that Toye leads at the living room. There's a create night at David Whitaker's house every Thursday night where people get together to just express creativity. There's a missional community that meets on Fridays twice a month. We eat, we share stories, we pray together. I'm really excited about our next teaching series because we're gonna, it heavily relates to today's topic of reshaping desire. And we're going to dive deeper into specific categories of desire and, and health and, and what God might be trying to do there. So just making worship gatherings a rhythmic priority is a big deal in reshaping our ability to love God and love others. So engage in these. Get after other people. Invite other people to engage in these opportunities. Because when we love God and when we love our neighbor, it will, just become, it will start to become more and more of a reality in our lives and in others' lives. So let's pray again, and then we're going to sing one last song.